0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Hustle. This is John Lamoureux. This week, our guest is Paul Collins. He is the self-proclaimed king of power pop. Now, that may or may not be the case, but what can't be argued is his major influence. Going back from his first band, The Nerves, in the mid-70s that he was in with Peter Case and Jack Lee, uh, onto his masterpiece, masterpiece albums with The Beat, His career sort of started to fizzle out in the mid-80s, and uh, he's had a rough go of it. Uh, Thankfully, now he's back on his feet, and he's getting a lot of the accolades he's deserved all along. Wait till you hear this. I mean, I basically ask him one question, and he tells his whole story in a brutally honest fashion. It is fascinating. Now, i got to give you a little bit of a heads up. This uh, interview was recorded without the intention of releasing it as a podcast. It was done some time ago. Um, I, at the time, was going to be writing an article on Paul Collins, and I was recording our conversation just so I wouldn't have to take notes. So uh, the sound quality isn't quite as good, and it's not really dynamic. I asked him a couple of questions, and as I said, he just goes. So uh, it's a little different format, but the information here is just priceless. I spoke with Paul uh, from his home in Manhattan.
1: In your words, I mean, let's, let's start broadly and then maybe go a little more a little more specific. How do you maintain a career in music? A career well, like yours. Okay,
2: uh, let's back up a little bit.
1: All right. Um, mm-hmm. First of all,
2: it's it it hasn't been easy, and um, it's better now than it than it uh, has been uh, in the past. Uh, to to give you a quick overview, I mean, I started when I was very young. I went out to California when I was. Seventeen, almost eighteen, I met up with the nerves. That was a great moment for me. I learned a lot. I got involved with a very you know uh high level of musicianship. um The band's output is incredibly well revered. Um, mm-hmm. It's become a legendary like you know occult underground group. That uh, is reached goes all the way to today, which is some 35, 40 years later. So it's a very powerful thing that I was involved with when you have a, a group that puts that one four song EP that can have that kind of impact. And one of the songs obviously became a huge hit for Blondie. I'm in the boat
3: with this one.
2: Mm-hmm. And um, each member went on to do fantastic things. Jack Lee has written some all-time great songs. Peter Case also has had a, a stellar career. And I've managed to have a, a pretty decent career myself. I the the Beat's first album is considered at the top of the game of the genre. So basically I've had a lot of, of great, um, I've been involved with a lot of great projects. I consider myself lucky, I was in the right place at the right time, I didn't screw it up, the stars lined (laughs) up, and I was able to do all these fantastic things. And then going forward, so I had this, you know, fantastic uh, beginning, a, 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 a fantastic pedigree, I mean, being in the nerves and the beat, I mean, this, you know, fantastic project that had really international impact. And uh albeit that we didn't, uh, you know, go platinum and we didn't become huge rock stars, we didn't make the big bucks, although Jack Lee made and, and continues to make a considerable amount of money from uh, hanging on the telephone, as right. it, it should be, and I'm, I'm very happy for him. He wrote that song, and it was a big hit, and it was a big success. So going forward, time passes, the 80s burn out, and then the nineties come and musical pace shift dramatically and then uh then grunge hits and nirvana and pearl jam and the whole Seattle sub pop movement takes over and basically the music that I did becomes obliterated. obliterated. Mm-hmm. Uh which happens a lot and it happens a lot in this country. You know, we are very, uh, you know, flavor-of-the-month oriented. When something's happening, right. it's happening. When it ceased to happen, it, you know, and grunge obliterated everything. It obliterated jazz. It obliterated blues. It obliterated folk. It, oh, right. it obliterated country. It obliterated everything. It was so massive. And um, I think a lot of people suffered for that. And that was, you know, unfortunate, and it's something that happens in this country. I think the Internet has, has leveled the playing field a bit. And other genres now can can it coexist with the, the mainstream and, and these artists can make money and continue on. But there was a while there where it's just like, and especially for me, for the kind of music that I made mm-hmm. and for the artist that I was. I wasn't a huge artist. I wasn't on the level of like the police or the romantics or the knack or where I could just. I could muddle along based on the, the the success that I had. I never had a top ten hit single. I never had a number one hit single. Which, if you have a number one hit single, you're that's a winner circle. That's a very yeah. rarefied circle. That artists
1: that you know, certain artists have been in. Mm-hmm. So, um, and is that because it's? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but it's one of the main reasons of that because it's it's a revenue stream that kind of continues. No, it's just like you're in the winner's circle. That's, you know, you have a hit song and that song is going to get
2: played every year somewhere, someplace. You're going to be able to, they'll invite you to a county fair because you wrote that song or or whatever. And, you know, and I'm I'm not, you know, I'm, of course, slightly jealous of that. I would love to have a hit single, but I don't begrudge anybody that does. I know how hard it is and I respect anybody in any genre that can scale those heights because it's not easy. And I know that firsthand.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Now, Mm -hmm. Whether I like somebody's hit single or not is irrelevant. That's my personal taste, and that's between me and me. Right. Anyway, so in the nineties, I was dead in the water. Literally, I could not make five dollars with my music, and I'm not. I'm not being facetious. I literally could not make five dollars with my music. So I wound up. I wound up in in America. I wound up going to Spain. I spent about five years touring acoustically because. and because I didn't have a band, and because it, it was too difficult to put together a band, and I was uh-huh. in Spain, and I didn't know any Spanish musicians, and, I, and I'm an American artist, so a Spanish band would, you know, didn't have as much cachet for me there. I'm an American artist; so they, they want to see me with an American band. So I wound mm-hmm. up doing all these acoustic shows, and I got very good at it, and I made a lot mm-hmm. of money doing it.
3: Wow! Um, and did you go to Spain? And I learned a lot learned learned about, to to about
2: performing. I was terrified in the beginning because I've always been a band person. So the idea of going out and playing by myself on an acoustic guitar was really like being naked. And I approached it the same way. I played the acoustic sure. guitar exactly like I play an electric, uh, an electric guitar. I made yes. the crap out of it. Yeah. And I managed to turn that into a thing. They used to call me the man with two guitars, because I got this big, massive sound. Um, and I, I used heavy strings on, on both my electric sure. and my acoustic guitars. So I was able to get a big sound. And I basically did what I did in a rock band, but I just did it by myself with an acoustic guitar. And uh, but then you know, there's there's there were a lot of great things about that. I learned a lot about performing. I overcome a lot, I overcame a lot of the fears of performing by myself. Uh, I missed playing with the band because I love being in a band. I'm a band guy. My whole mm-hmm. introduction of music was being in a band. That was always the impetus from day one. You want to be in a band like the Beatles or the Stump. That was, sure. that was from day one. So I did that. Uh, I I learned a lot. I made a lot of money. And then I even became a duo with a very, very talented guitar player in uh, Madrid, Octavio, who I sub- then subsequently recorded uh, two albums with. Fantastic musician, and coincidentally, I'm going to play with him in a few days, July 19th. I'm going to do a show with him wow. and the drummer and the bass player that I recorded with in Spain in the south of Spain. So, but so then, wow. then like I was doing this thing. I was an expat. I knew that. I couldn't get anywhere in the United States, and that wore on me considerably. I mean, I was an American living in Spain. I could make money there, but I was really not in the real world. And the yeah. real world to me was the United States. And I was completely, the more time I spent in Spain, living in Spain, and not having an album out, I became farther and farther removed from having any kind of disability or or um, uh, involvement in, in, the, in the American music scene,
1: sure. on any level. So I basically did you, disappeared. Did you move to Spain because you liked Spain, or did you have a fan base there? Or I think well, I, I moved I'm to Spain originally. I,
2: I lived in Spain in two different periods. I moved to Spain in 1984, and I was part of which which allowed me to continue to work until this day. I was in part of the New Wave explosion in Spain the first time it hit, in 1984. And I became friends with all the bands that became key players in that musical scene. And I performed it. I went there with Steve Huff and we played all over Europe for several years. And through my work in Spain, I then became included in anything to do with the commemorating of that time. It's called the Movida, which is like the movement. And even today, like they do big documentaries and I'm the only foreign artist that's ever included. I mean, they sent really? some to New York to interview me as part of that because I was, I was the only really foreign musician that integrated himself in that music scene and worked with the, the, these bands that subsequently became very popular because of their association with that movement. Then I moved back to the States in 1987 and we were completely, at that point, we were completely off the grid and we slowly slid into You know, uh, we would start. We would start. We were working secondary markets, then we were working tertiary markets, and we just we beat it into the ground until there was absolutely no work left. And then I moved to New York, and um, then I started going back to Spain in the mid '90s. And I, in the beginning, I went with a band and did some few tours. I've been very successful in Spain, and I've made a lot of money in Spain. Really. That's and it's supporting me. me. Yes, I mean, a lot of money. In the 90s, we could make two, three, four, five thousand dollars $3, $5,000 or so. So it was wow. really good good money. And then, then I wound up living there. Then I wound up working there acoustically in the late 80s and the early
3: 90s. Bobby was a friend of mine. You know, he lived over on the next block.
2: And Bobby was a real cool guy We used to hang around a lot Well, we hung out down in the basement And he played a lot of cool guitar And then one day his parents sent him away To some place up in Connecticut We
3: got in the car and we drove up there But when we so oh, Bobby really gave us a scale because pumpkin full of was easy. They say, Bobby, your are
2: And then after uh, I was living in New York, I, couldn't, I could not get any work in the United States. Uh, I, there was very little interest in my music. I put out an album called The Paul Collins Band with my buddy Rick Wagner, who was uh, mm-hmm. the bassist for a while with the DBs. And we recorded that record with uh, Will Rigby, who uh, was also in the DBs and now works with Steve Earle. And mm. Billy Ficka was on that record, who was the drummer for television. And mm-hmm. Marty Lennon, who was a guitar- guitarist from Syracuse, who is still working in Syracuse. He was part of a band called Flash Kids So we put that out, and it was very difficult. And, there, and that band performed, and really, too, you know, we would play clubs in New York, and we would tour around the East Coast, but it was very difficult, and the reception was next to nothing. I mean, those were yeah. days when you would play, and there would be 10 people there, or uh. 15 people there, and it was really uh, humiliating, demoralizing, yeah. pathetic, and you felt I was getting older, so I felt like Jesus Christ, I'm beating mm-hmm. this horse, and it's not—it's—it's it's beyond being a dead horse, it's its decomposing, and right. I'm, I'm still beating the crap out of it.
1: And so and while this that's is going, going, on, while is that? going on, though, you're still able to attract large crowds and get nice-sized paychecks back in Spain?
3: Yeah, Spain
2: always... So it's still America, do, but after a while, it started hmm. to be like Jesus Christ, you know. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a total expat. The only place in the world where I can make any money is in Spain. And so, Fair. you know, even though it was great and I... You know, should have been on my hands and knees and and kissing the ground, but at least I could get that. I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have because I felt I was so, uh, yeah, was such an outcast here. Yeah. Then, um, I was living in New York and 9 11 hit and I was raising a Mm. kid and, um, I was married to my second Spanish wife and she flipped out when the, when 9 11 happened and she said, I'm taking my kid and I'm going back to Spain and, I'm done. And I was like, I hadn't, no I was delivering newspapers, I had no, I had very small income, we were struggling wow. to the vibe.
1: I was not really playing music
2: at all. And So I you're, totally there have been me.
1: periods, sorry to get uh, specific, but there have been periods, it sounds like, where your primary income did not come from music, it came from other holding oh, down yeah, other for, jobs. For a
2: long stretch of time, I worked. I was delivering newspapers. I was a messenger in New York. In Spain, right. I was always able to make money playing music. Right. But, but in the, in America, I was I was a, I was a messenger boy, and I was
1: a I delivered newspapers. I delivered furniture. Did anything I could. And, and what are you um, thinking of? I mean, this is something not to not to derail you because I want to get back to your story. But this is this kind of goes to the heart of. What I'm, what I want to find out, which is that when you've had, I mean, I've seen, I, you have, I don't know, you probably know this, but there's a concert of you in Spain in 1984 on YouTube. I've watched it a couple of times. It's amazing. And to go from having had, you know, a large crowd and critically acclaimed albums come out on major labels and then you're doing this, what's that transition like?
0: I mean, I can only was imagine horrible. what it would
1: be like for a It was horrible. I
2: was getting older. I literally would sit in my shoebox apartment, and my archives were in shoeboxes, and yeah. I would look at that, and I would go, man, this is pathetic. I, here I am in a shoebox apartment looking at my glory days, which are in shoeboxes. Yeah. That, and, and it was depressing. It was uh, humiliating. It was... Um, it was like, you know, what am I going to do? It's I'm, yeah. I'm done. I'm finished. It's over.
1: Uh, and isn't it interesting that time has proven what a valuable artist and songwriter you have always been, and yet there are periods in your history where, like you said, you couldn't make five bucks with your music, and now – Anyone who knows who you are knows that you're the king of power pop, or that you're one of the well, uh,
3: high
2: Well, let's
1: we'll get to that. We'll
2: get to that okay. in a minute. So, okay. there I am, you know, uh, basically crying in my suit, you know, and sure. it, it was not hard for me to feel um, sorry for myself, and that's a terrible thing. I mean, I don't, I don't recommend it, and it's not a pleasant thing to go through when you feel sure. sorry for yourself. Uh, on the, and, and I believe, you know, I was still living better than 90% of the world. So, I mean, you know, I, I wasn't starving. In fact, I was fat. So, I mean, it wasn't <laughs> that bad. And um, so anyway, so then nine eleven hits. My wife at the time says, I'm going back to Spain. I'm taking my kid, uh, our kid, really. And yeah. so it just coincidentally, two things happened. I had a tour there. <laughs> set up Uh, and this was we were going back sometime in October and I had a tour in in that that November and a friend of mine that I had known when I had lived in New York when I was like 17 who had fallen out of touch with for maybe 15 20 years or more suddenly came back into my life and was a very successful businessman and had according to him a, a chunk of money that he was he could do whatever he wanted to and when he heard about all my stories about Spain, he said, "Come on, man, let's open up a bar there." And for mm-hmm. two years, we talked about it. And at that precise moment, when nine eleven went down, I said, "Eric, I'm going back to Spain. Let's do the bar." Now, prior to that, I knew, uh, you know, I always had always said, "Yeah, let's do it." But I knew, it, first of all, I knew I didn't know much, but I knew that owning a bar and running a bar was a lot of hard work. Cause I, I, right. I, that much I knew. You know, how much money you could make, I don't know. But I was so desperate, I figured, well, this is, you know, at least this is an option. This is an option. I can open up a bar and maybe make some money because I knew that bars did well in Spain because Spain is a real bar place. I mean, every city has tons of bars and people go out and drink. And it's not having a bar in Spain. is not like having a bar in America. Uh, It's a totally different vibe. Anyway, so long story short, go over there, open up the bar. And um, on the opening night, my partner says, I'm out of cash, and I'm splitting. Deal with it. Oh, no. (laughs) And so I have this bar. I have no experience. And uh, I teach myself how to make the best cocktails in Madrid. I get written up as having the best martini, which if you drink (laughs) martinis or if you know martini drinkers, they are the most exacting drinkers on the planet. And I somehow managed to, uh, you know, rise to the occasion and Uh they an absolutely beautiful bar that gets, uh, you know, and and I do reasonably good business. Uh, I open up on the night that the economy switches from the Peseta, which was the money that they used to use, to the euro. So for the Uh first year, nobody in Spain really knows what anything is worth. Mm
0: -hmm. They really
2: don't. Mm -hmm. And um, by the end of the second year, because when when they this this was also the begin, the beginning of the end of the economy and this is like two thousand two or two thousand three.
3: No, nine eleven okay.
2: was nine eleven was when? Uh Two thousand one, I believe. All right. So two thousand yeah, so uh this is the beginning of two thousand two. This was the beginning of the end. This was the long fuse burning that ended up with the real estate bubble and the whole economy of collapse. Mm-hmm. So for the first year, nobody knows what money is, so they're spending money, but they really don't know what they're spending. By the second year, people start to get an inkling that actually the price of everything has gone up 66% overnight, literally
3: 66%
2: overnight. So at the end of the first year, people are realizing now that their salaries, they're getting about a third, you know, it's mm-hmm. everything's costing like two-thirds more than it used to cost. And you figure that out, you know, you start to figure out that you can't buy as much groceries or whatever as you did sure. before, with that sure. same amount of money you're making. By the end of the second year, I knew that the bar was not, it was going to slide, because I made exactly the same amount at, the, at mm-hmm. the end of the second year. And I ran the thing, it was like 16-hour days. I thought rock and roll was hard, and I was going, you know, you don't know what hard is, sure. Pete, were now, are you for Blake? I was everywhere. running this pretty much by myself. I was there seven days a week, drinking, wow. smoking, snorting. I mean, it was a, it was yeah. like this was going to kill me. I mean, yeah. and in Spain at that time they smoke like. I mean, I would see the smoke wafting out the door. And I'm, uh, right. I'm breathing this shit for ten hours a day.
3: Sure. Anyway,
2: long nights, five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, but. I'm wondering, and I'm, like, happy because I'm not trying to... At, at that point, when I opened the book up the bar, I really felt like a prostitute with my music. Yeah. I felt like I'm just tired. I'm tired mm-hmm. of hustling. I'm tired of pimping myself. I'm trying to get, yeah. tired of getting people to believe that this song's a hit or that I got something to offer. It was such a relief to do something that wasn't that personal. You know what I mean? It was personal, yeah. but it wasn't, like, hawking the songs that had my blood, sweat, tears, and sure. my and being rejected constantly, so it was like, it was a relief from that. I put up my guitar on the wall, I didn't touch it for two years, and I basically figured, okay, music's over, I'm going to do this bar, uh, maybe I'm going to get lucky, this bar's going to make money, and I can just, you know, I'll be cool, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't have to prostitute myself, which is that after 20 some odd, 30 years doing it, So what you feel like, you feel like a whore. It's like forget it. You'll do anything to make it. Every song has to be a hit. That's you know you got to write the song that's going to solve all your problems. That's going to make you all that money. That's going to put you back on the map. And it never happens. And it doesn't work that way. Art doesn't work that way. When you start doing art for that, those reasons, basically, you start producing shit. Yeah. Art is art. Art, you have to do because you love it, and 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 it's your passion. It's your desire.
1: Right.
2: Anyway, so go through that whole thing, and then. And but all the time, I've, I'm playing this great old jazz in my bar. I I, everybody, I knew everybody mm. wanted me to put like play rock and roll music, but there's tons of rock and roll bars in Madrid, so I mm. said, no, I'm going to play all this awesome jazz. So I went deep into it, and I was playing stuff, and uh, stuff I'd never heard, going way back, you know, to the well. 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. And all the time, I'm listening to 16 hours a day. I'm listening to the shit, like the harmonies, the, the construction, mm-hmm. the arrangements, the melodies. And I'm just grooving on this jazz, everything from Sinatra to more obscure stuff to this, to that, to the everything, to to like house to this, and I'm just listening, 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 listening. And then one day I pick up the guitar and it's like, boom, That's like Really? All of a sudden, all these fucking half-baked songs that I was sticking around with for for years, all of a sudden, bam, 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 and I go, wow, I still got it, man. Bam, <laughs> you know, and for Helen and 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 all the songs, I'm flying high. And there's some absolutely gorgeous songs on that record, the number one being Helen, which we play every single night now. Helen, Helen, oh, baby,
3: can't you see? Oh, Helen.
2: As well loved as anything I've ever done, including the first album, wow. the Nerves and everything. Right so, on. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, I still got it. And of course, yeah. I was the happiest guy in the world. Now, this, that album came right after I hit rock bottom. I, I'd done the bar, the bar went belly up, and then I did what was even worse. I started bartending for other people, so I became an employee and oh, and boy. that and and that was even worse, and I had to work at tremendously long hours, like to four or five six in the morning to make the patient sure. that I was making. I'd gotten divorced, I had alimony, I was like, yeah, I was like totally screwed and extremely unhappy and then I got involved with somebody, and that relationship went south, and when that went south, I had my mega midlife crisis i mean I oh, was, really I slipped. I slipped completely. I was like forty-eight years old, and I was a basket case. i mean, and literally in every sense of
3: the word. I
2: was, and was
1: this? I, so this I would, would have been I about was, ten years. I, ago?
2: I was, what? This would have been about yeah. This was years ten years ago. ago. Okay. So I'm living in Madrid. I have this kick-ass apartment with uh, with a, a, a patio and a uh-huh. duplex with a fireplace. And I'm sitting there, literally crying, tears running down my face, Whoa. wanting to jump off my patio because I just. I've lost it. I've completely lost it. I I I cannot. I have a kid to take care of. Sure. So unhappy, and um, then um, I remembered what Jack Lee told me many, 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 many years ago when we used to sit around in his bus, nineteen seventy-five. He said, "There's nothing finer or nothing sweeter than taking a lifetime of failures." And making them into a success and that's what i decided to do and the first wow. thing i did was in about a week's time i wrote a book about my life yep. a fictionalized yep. book called my mother my mentor and, me. and it was about me it was like a trio like me my mother and my mentor my mentor is jack lee so but i never named him in the book so okay. i did this whole book i sit down just like you know uh uh, Jack Kerouac. I, I read mm-hmm. Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, which totally blows mm-hmm. my mind. And I'm not a big Hemingway fan, but I love that book. I think it's his really? And I say, screw it. I'm going to write a book about my life. And so I sit down and I write this book. It's about me. It's, it's a quick read. I don't know how many pages it is, but I write it. And then I do this album. I do the album in my house for a thousand bucks. I get three guys that I knew, and I said, listen, I just want to make a record with three other musicians. Love to play music. No production. Songs do the talking. Get a friend to bring a 16-track ADAP remote uh, uh, recording thing into my apartment, and we cut mm-hmm. this album. And it's a beautiful, very simple, very house of cards, fragile little record that has great songs on it. And it's my comeback album. So that album so, comes We're we talking about flying high.
1: Flying high. Yeah, and
2: yeah, I'm with that, sure. I. That's a direct line to today. Then I slowly rebuild myself. But that album, wow. I get the Big Look album, which is uh, Ribbon of Gold. We go to Sweden with Chips Kisby, who does the Helicopters and No Man's. We spend 12,000 euros, which is a ridiculous amount of money that somebody paid for us to make that album. So we have the one-two punch of the, the the record for no money, then the big production mm-hmm. record. And then I come to the States, and uh, Alive picks me up because they're re- re- reissuing the Nerves and they're reissuing the breakaways and they pay for me to make a record with Jim Diamond, and then, then that becomes the king of power pop. So that that trio puts me wow. back on the map. I start working, first I work in Italy, first I tour the hell out of Spain, then we go to Italy, then we go to South by Southwest for two years in a row, and then through wow. that, everybody in America all of a sudden knows, we got to review this guy, this is one of the best reviews I've had in my life. He's standing in, we're playing at Beerland, and this One of this major writer in Austin, Austin Chronicle, whatever. He is standing in line for another show, okay?
3: And he (laughs) just
2: so happens that he's his position in the line is in the front door of Beerland, and he looks in and he sees this fan on stage, and he's looking, and he says, "Who the fuck is that? Is that Paul Collins?" I can't believe it. I thought this guy was dead. And he writes this major article that, you know,
3: standing online
2: and he hears me playing and he goes, Oh my god, this guy the only thing he's lost is his hair, he's as good as ever well, blah, blah, blah. Sure. So I rebuild myself from that, for you, from that point to now. Then King of Powerpop comes along, I'm making that record. Um I ha- I'm I'm I've moved back to New York, um which I'm very happy about. Good. And um
1: so do you maintain a place in New York and a place in Spain? No, no, no. I was on the wait list for 14
2: years for uh, the, the place where I will reside until I uh, pass on to the next life. Okay. And that is Westbeth, which is an artist community subsidized by the United States government in Manhattan. Well, wow. the oldest and largest government subsidized artist residency, I believe, it, it, it definitely in the United States could be in the world. It's been here for about 60 years, and um, forty years. I'm sorry. Wow, 40 years. Interesting. and and so I I could finally get in. I have this beautiful apartment, and I, I've got mm-hmm. it made in the shade. And then I'm going to make the record with Jim. And I need I know I need to make a record that connects the dots. I need mm-hmm. I need to make a record that you know it can't be folky. It can't be singer songwritery. It's got to be a, a rock and roll record that mm-hmm. puts me back in the driver's seat. So, and I, I'm going over the material, and I start reworking a lot of material from the past that that has been lying on the side, uh, and and that, you know, I go into the songwriting closet mm-hmm. and pull out all mm-hmm. these old little like, do you want to love me, and don't blame your troubles on me, and... And I do a real version of Many Roads to Follow, and mm-hmm. and uh, I come up with some great new songs, and I cover the Letter, and I cover the Flaming Groovies, You Tore Me Down, and I write this song. I drop my son off at the airport, and I'm dri- I'm coming back on the train, and this has only happened to me a couple of times. So I don't fit in as one uh, occasion where I write a song completely without any instrument at all. I'm just sitting someplace or
1: something, really? and okay. the song
2: comes to me, and uh, King of Power Pop was like that. I'm on the subway, going back to New York, going back to my apartment. I mean, you know, things are kind of cool, but I'm still like, you know, I'm still struggling mm-hmm. and, you know, and I, I, I come up with this song. And when I came up with that song, I said, okay, fuck it.
3: A long time ago all across this land Rock and roll was hurting It was feeling so bad A couple of boys Picked up their guitars They couldn't really play So they started writing songs They were the kings of power pop. At first it wasn't easy Cause no one really cared They kicked them out of everywhere They kicked them down the stairs Standing on the corner A Hollywood wouldn't bite Listening to the man Tell me rock and roll had died They were the kings of at this point, I've decided to
2: embrace Power Pop, whereas sure. when it first came out, when we were in the nerves and in the beat, we thought Power Pop was the kiss of death, we hated the term, and we didn't want to have anything to do with it because it sounded like a bunch of wimpy shit, and we were mm. a rock and roll band. And Power Pop, the only thing that was going to do for us was hold us back, which at the time it did. Now mm. it means something completely different. And right. When I got my computer in the uh, 1993, and I went on and I started looking at my space, I started to see all these new bands that were had power pop in their little description of the kind of music they played. So I was going, wow, this shit is happening again. It's not the case of yeah. death anymore. All these cool new bands are like thinking it's cool. So it's cool to be power pop. So I'm right. like, okay, fine. I'm, I'm down with that. No problem. So then I realized that, you know, obviously marketing and stuff, I got to find some place to hang my hat through my work with in South by Southwest, I was meeting all these young bands like Gentleman Jesse and all these all these, hmm. whole new generation of young musicians that I didn't even know existed because they're off the radar. They're not – you don't read about them in Rolling Stone. You don't read about sure. them in Spin or whatever. You sure. only find out about them by going out there in the clubs and in the trenches. So um, – and then I do a tour with Gentleman Jesse and that's when the whole floodgates opened, and I realized that this whole underground scene that was going on—that you could work, you could book tours, the internet—you didn't need a booking agency. Wow! You just—you know—you didn't need to hook up with these bands and network like yeah. that. And so I embraced power pop, and of course, everybody looked at me as like I was like one of the main main players still alive yes. in power pop. So since I had that song, I said, "Fuck it,
0: I'm going to yeah. call this
2: album the King of Power Pop." And I asked the label, I said, listen, Patrick, I don't know, this is kind of ballsy. What do you think? Am I going to get slaughtered on this? And He said, no, man, rock and roll. He said, if you're going to be in this game, have some balls. Fuck it. Absolutely. It was the smartest thing I ever did. I'm not sure. the king of power pop. And actually, what happened was I figured, okay, Doug Figer has passed away. Who I know, <laughs> I'm very sad about his passing. Right. Alex Chilton has passed away, which is why. Yeah. I did the letter because the letter was one of the first songs I ever did when I was playing drums in the Nerves. And when he passed away, it was like boom! I got to do that song. It's part of yeah. my history, sure. and and it's just like him passing away made me think about that song. I said, shit, yeah, I have every right to do that song. It's, it's, right. You know, it's part of my blood. Definitely. And um, but then what? And then and then most of the other guys, my contemporaries. Basically, weren't really doing it anymore. You know, they yeah. were either like Peter Case, who was mining a completely different territory, totally. and yep. not, you know. So I said, "Well, what's my competition? Who's going to fucking give me a hard time? Nobody." But I forgot about Dwight Twilley. The so one day I get this phone call from Twilley, and they go, "Oh shit, <laughs> he's going to really, he's going to call. You know, he's going to ram it to me. He's gonna you know, right." And right. And, and he was totally cool. I said, "Dwight, I'm sorry, I was just kidding," <laughs> and because and we, we didn't know each other. And he said, Don't oh, worry, he, he said, You can be the king of power pop, I'll be the king of power poop. And um
3: <laughs> because he's
2: a very funny guy and he's a great oh, Calling myself the king of power pop, and I learned a lot from that. Um good. it was the smartest thing I do because that's what this game is about. That's what sure. media is about. You you control it. You direct yeah. track. It. You wanna be the yeah. king of power pop, say you're the king of power pop.
3: And then People will
2: believe you're the king of Power Pop. That's exactly as long right. as you don't, you know, disgrace yourself.
3: Well, and you now, have
2: the goods to back that up too. Not everybody does. Yeah, I mean, I, I can reasonably back it up. Now, right. I don't, I don't go around, you know, like being an asshole about it, and saying I'm, I'm the perfect. king of Power Pop. But you know, I don't have any problem with people referring to me no. referring to me as that, and I'm. I try to be humble about it and say, no, 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 that was just tongue-in-cheek, which it was. But on the other hand, I'm no dummy, and it's helped me in my work, and it's helped me now when I tour, and I tour my ass off,
3: Mm -hmm. I've noticed
2: in general, like this last tour we did, it's fantastic. The clubs treat me, I mean, beautifully. People are very nice, and and I want to say respectful, but respectful in a nice way. I don't go through any of the crap that I used to go to. I don't have people, club owners arguing about how they lost money and they you know, I they gave me three hundred dollars and they're crying in the soup. Everybody treats me very nicely. They I don't have to ask to get paid. They come up and pay me. They say, Thank you for coming. We want you to come again you know, it's just Mm -hmm. a really dramatic difference. And you're talking to somebody who's been working the scene for 30 years and working this Mm -hmm. on the ground, not, you know, I I was never a superstar. I was never, you know, we did have a moment, a moment of glory when we were managed by Bill Graham when we were on Sony. And believe me, if I knew now, I mean, if I knew then what I know now, I would have been a lot more appreciative of the fact that we had four roadies, a road manager, a driver, and and all this shit going on for us. And we thought we were like, oh, fuck it. You know, we're going to be rock stars and this is just the normal shit. Right?
1: Do you think, looking back, I mean, is there anything you could have done differently? I mean, or, do you have regret? Uh, well, other one than thing just is I could have not done
2: so much blow oh, well, in L.A. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's for sure.
1: Um, <laughs> That'll kill it, right? Okay. You know, I don't
2: know. I mean, obviously, sure, I could have been a little bit more serious. I could have tried to write better songs. I could have. One thing I I shouldn't have done is fire Michael Lewis from the original band. That and that was mm. I was kind of you know that was okay. I I assume responsibility for it because I was the band leader. But I was kind of pushed into that by the other members of the band and the management company, and it was the stupidest fucking thing. All of us ever did. We had a fantastic band that was out of sight, and we yeah. had petty, petty bickering and shit Uh-oh. get in the way, and we broke up a really, absolutely wonderful group, and it was stupid, and it yeah. was based on, on on just ego and just stupidity, sheer stupidity yeah. on a lot of people's part, and I I blame a little bit on the management because they were adults and they were older. And Bill Graham and those people should have come in and said, what the fuck are you guys talking about? You have an awesome band. Shut the Mm -hmm. fuck up and go out and play.
3: Right.
2: Instead of allowing us to um, do what we did. Because their attitude towards musicians were, and and I'm not kidding you, and they would say this, musicians are like cattle. And that's the way they felt about it. Mm. And I'm not
1: joking. No, I believe you. I mean that's what the business did. Yeah, well, I'm talking about a guy who worked with the
2: biggest talents in the business.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
2: you know, you're talking about a guy who who sat down with Jimi Hendrix and yeah. and 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 uh 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 Led Zeppelin and and Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger, I mean, you know, literally yeah. sat down with them.
3: Sure. You know, literally. you name it, Pink
2: yeah. Floyd, the Grateful Dead, I mean the, the the top, top, top performers of the day. Anyway, so we fucked up.
1: Were there – what stands out from back then? I mean, what were some – well, first of all, let me wrap up this portion of the interview. So do you now specifically make your living from music again? Are you playing –
3: As hard as it
2: is to believe that's how I pay my bills and raise my son. Um, But, again – And this is a word to anybody who may be listening to this or reading this who, uh, you know, is pursuing the same kind of whatever, any kind of uh, career, artistic career, or or any kind of endeavor where you want to make your your livelihood out of what you love to do, whatever your passion Mm -hmm. is. And I don't care if it's a plumber or... Sure, whatever it is that you do that that you love to do and you want to make a living out of it, it's all about keeping your overhead in line with your income. And I do hmm. that. I have my, I live very modestly, and I am able to keep my budget within the within the realm of what I make. And that's how okay. I can do it. And sure. the minute I lose that, I will not be able to support myself playing music.
1: Right now, I would imagine it was. It's more. Is it more expensive to live in New York than it was when you were living in Spain?
2: Well, not the way I live because I have an amazing okay. situation.
1: And again,
2: I live very close to the bone. You know, yeah. I eat at home. I eat. Yeah. I go shopping at five different grocery stores to get, you know, my mm-hmm. my vegetables at the place where they're, they're fresh and cheap, and my this there and my that there, mm-hmm. and um, I don't eat out. And I don't take taxi, and mm. I have my little bicycle to get around. Um, sure. You know, and I live within my means. Basically, if you live within your means, you can do whatever the hell you want.
1: True, yeah, that's true for everybody, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So
2: I mean, that's just common sense. Now, I also work very hard, and I and I, I just I, I'm I am an example of what happens to some with someone who does not give up. I never gave up. Yeah. I should have given up. My father told me to give up. Everybody wow. I knew was looking at me like, why is this guy still doing this? What is the matter with him? it he fucking <laughs> out of his mind. And then mm. it all
1: flipped. It all slipped. I don't so exactly when, know how. Do you flipped. know when? I mean, you went from no. a moment there where, I mean, the 90s, you couldn't get arrested. 2004-ish, you start having, feeling a sort of creative rebirth. You know, you're the news is back. You're able to write songs that you're proud of again. And now, I mean, I would, I don't know for sure, but I would assume that you're, you're being invited to play at festivals or shows like the one where I met you, which is, you know, a power pop sort of festival, two nights, four bands. I mean, you probably get invited to those things periodically. And so now, not to, I hope it's not that you're a full fledged nostalgia band, but you're playing to your cult. Your devoted fans who've been with you for a long time, as more people like me discover you. Um, I mean, does that? How does that feel? I mean, is it? You're not. Well, happy, I'm very, very, very happy. happy. I, I think was, a key
2: right? part of the success that I'm enjoying now, and we have to absolutely put this in context. You know, I am a niche market underground artist. You know, I do not play big venues. I do not play shows with twenty five dollar tickets. Which is considered cheap these days. Mm -hmm. But I live in a world that I'm very happy with. And and it's a world that I built for myself. And it is specifically built on playing with all these new young bands. And Mm -hmm. basically, what I did starting in 2008 is I went out there like any other unknown young band and I humped it. I played shows Mm -hmm. for free. I played shows for 25 bucks. I played shows for 50 bucks. And I went and I proved it uh, the Mm -hmm. hard way. That I still had something to offer, but I aligned myself with all these young bands like Gentleman Jesse and all the and and all the bands like that, the Burger Record bands, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know the countless new and young bands that uh, cite the, the era that I come from as one of their influences. Now, some of those bands are straight up power pop bands, some of those bands are pop punk bands, some of those bands are punk bands, and some of those bands are even harder edged than that. But they all are you know 18 to 20 to 25 to 30 years old, and they look at my time period as like part of their musical history. This is long before they were born. Yeah, I've had kids say,
3: hey, play me that song, uh, you know, that says what life is all about. And I'm going, How the hell
2: do you even know this song? It was written 20 years before you were born, and they know it. So right. that really showed me the absolute glory of music and the timelessness yeah. of it and how how what an awesome privilege it is to be a part of it and what you know what a what a uh, y- you know it's like mm-hmm. it's an honor it's a privilege yeah. to to be a part of this and to to create things that have that kind of impact for people because that's the same thing that I experienced I would listen to this sure. music when I was a kid and it would blow my mind and yeah. I would go jesus christ how the fuck do these guys do this and if I could do that It would be the coolest thing in the world. To me, making music, singing music, playing music, being a part of a band was like, there was nothing cooler than that. You could not give me, there was no, like, alternative that I would think, like, you know, well, maybe I could be a movie star, or maybe I could be an astronaut, or maybe I got, no. This was it for me. And so, I got, you know, the chance to do that.
3: Yeah. To whatever degree.
2: I mean, that's what I try to tell myself now.
3: Come on, man.
2: You are fucking lucky. And don't forget it and and continue to give your best and do your best. So, but the the success I'm enjoying now is specifically related to that. I was not a a, a pussy about it or prissy about it. I -hmm. went out there, rolled up my sleeves and went to work. And I didn't say, oh, well, I'm too good for this or I'm too old for this. I mean, I literally, and I was like pushing 50, man, sleeping on floors and couches and shit. And believe me. Or going into houses, and I'm I'm kind of a clean freak. I will say that I like you know <laughs> come to my house. My house is very neat, and I like it sure. nice and clean, and I like a okay. bathroom and stuff like that. And I would go into these places, and I would go, "Jesus Christ, man! Yeah, I only I yeah. shower here," <laughs> and I did it. Good. now, now I I am able because uh, too the other thing is, and I play the card every single day. I'm grandpa. There's one bed. Mm. Guess who's going to get it? me mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. and
2: um no and what's lovely and what's sweet about it is nobody begrudges me nobody ne- there's never an argument and um because we're still DIY you know sure. we do go to hotels now when we can but uh, most of the times like we just did a tour it was one of the longer tours it was a national tour. it was like 26 shows and it was about five weeks wow. and Uh, that five weeks we stayed in maybe five or six hotels and the rest of the time we were staying with friends albeit we have wonderful places to stay now it's basically when we go on the road it's like visiting family and friends lovely homes I mean spectacular on the west coast swimming pools pool rooms I mean the whole nine yards and in a lot of these places I know in advance like when we go to Chico I know the bedroom I know what the the wallpaper looks like (laughs) when we go to Riverside we're staying with with the fact the woman that we usually stay with in Riverside, the, the promoter put us in a hotel and she actually got mad at me. She said, No, when you come here, you stay at my house.
0: And oh, that's she had
2: great. a mansion. And I go, All Okay, right. Ro, I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. Next time, right. we'll be we'll, you we'll at your house.
1: Yeah. Do you ever play Denver? What? I've looked and I, I don't know that, I don't think you've been through Denver for a while, have you? I did play Denver last
2: October and it tanked.
3: Totally, oh. I,
2: I, we did a tour with the Maxis or our band. That there, it, it was an un, it was an unusual tour for me. They booked it. We love them. They're our dear friends from uh, Southern California,
3: okay. and
2: they're a pop punk band. And we all went out together, one big 15 your band, and, and their band and our band. There was like nine of us, and. It was a tour where we made the least amount of money, and we had the most fun. Good.
3: Okay, we
2: were cool. just nine laughing guys barreling yeah. down the highway,
0: Good. and
2: and we covered a lot of miles. And they we did this all ages show DIY show in Denver, and um, we did Denver, we did Salt Lake, we did Boise, we did a lot of shows that tanked, they just tanked, but yeah. we had a great time. I mean, the worst was Spokane. We made $15 for the two days. Oh, painful. Yeah, but, you know, know, the thing is, we didn't cry in our soup. We had a party every night. They were the loveliest guys. We're dear friends. And um, it's almost like we'd do it again. Just because we had such a great time. And we all took care of ourselves. We were like one big family. And believe me, Nine people, and we were staying at people's places a lot of times, and that's not easy to pull off. You know, I remember we stayed in Denver at this girl's house who was a friend of theirs. The bass player was sleeping in the closet. Me and Matt were sleeping, like, in the foyer where you come into the house. Uh And the other three guys were on the floor. Someone was in the kitchen, and and we actually made it. I mean, it was, like, unbelievable. We all got into this place, and um, it was really cute. But the thing okay. is, we're very um, down-to-earth, sure, actual, realistic, Good. and we tour with, at bare bones, lowest overhead possible. We don't okay. rent gear. We share gear with the opening acts. We stay with friends as much as possible, and we keep it as close to the bone as we can. And now I make enough money that we cover our expenses and everybody in the band, everybody in my band, gets a paycheck at the end of this, and oh, it's great. getting better and better all the time. That's so great. we um, cool. we're
1: moving forward. Good. Well, uh, let's see. I think we're pretty much coming up at the end. You've covered pretty much everything I wanted to ask you about. Um, do you have any? What's your? So two things. There's two things left that I want to ask you about. Number one, how do? How would you want uh, and to say how to be remembered makes it sound like you're old. That's not what I'm saying. But what, what, what do you feel like is your legacy? What do you want people to know about you who maybe haven't even been turned on to your music yet? And then he said, yeah, because, uh,
2: Slim Whitman passed away a while ago. Uh-huh. And his, what he said he wanted to be remembered as, which I thought was very, very cool. He said, I want to be remembered as a nice guy who always had a clean suit.
3: I thought that was very cool Um, uh,
2: I think I would like to be remembered as a nice guy you know like a helpful Uh guy a guy who's positive you know positive influence on on things on the world on his world the the people that I've touched and um, I don't know I guess if I was remembered as a nice guy and, and, and a really good songwriter, I think that would
1: that would be okay. Good. Good. Well as far as I'm concerned, you're there. Um and then what's what's maybe your favorite memory at any point in your career? Um I assume maybe your favorite or your biggest or whatever goes back to the beginning at some point, but what's your favorite memory? When you think of back on your career and you think back of all the things you've accomplished or the songs you've written or the breakthroughs or the downsides or whatever, what's your favorite thing? Is there a big moment? Uh, well. Being on American Bandstand? <laughs>
2: Uh, no, that was I, that was such a blur. I can hardly remember that. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I'm glad about that. We were very lucky, and Dick Clark was an absolute. You know, one of the, the, the things that I, I this doesn't answer your question, but one of the no, things that um, I am cognizant of is that we met a lot of fantastic people, and I was I was smart enough to learn from them. Dick Good. Clark, any Goodman, Eddie Money.
3: Wow!
2: All the people that we met that were really wonderful professionals, and that were kind and loving to us, and generous with us. Um, Bill Graham, mm-hmm. uh, just all the all the the the, the, the really the people that uh, even Roy Rogers that you know shook your hand, looked you in the eye, smiled at you, and gave wow. you the time of day, yeah. and and you could look at them and say, "Wow." That's what a pro is. That's what these kids, yeah. the brotherhood, the brotherhood, it's almost vaudevillian. Sure. The brotherhood of show business and these people that that recognized your talent and, and it didn't threaten them. It's a very, show business is a very competitive field. Not the only one, but it is very competitive. But there's a certain, there's a certain aspect or certain, type of person in it that is secure in what their craft is and what their talent is and 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 they ha- don't have a problem recognizing your talent other people are very threatened by other people's talent and you can yeah, see that the way that they act but some people they just they know that no one's going to take away what they have so they don't mm-hmm. have to worry about that and they can express their their um uh joy or their uh, I can't think of the right word about appreciation. You do, you know, their appreciation yeah. of, of, of your talent
3: right. and those
2: people are one and I've been very lucky to have met a lot of really fantastic professionals in the record business, in radio performers that, that have really taught me and given, given of themselves to me and I was smart enough to listen and learn because mm-hmm. you really you know, you, people can try to help you, but if you're not going sure. to listen and learn to them, you're not going to get that. And we, I was very fortunate. Um, favorite memory. Uh, i tell you, when Jack Lee played me hanging on the telephone in that burnout sloth house on Pine and Gough and my Lord. arm had goosebumps all over it, and I was sitting there going, oh, my God. God, this is unbelievable. This is the kind of music I want to make. This is the kind of band I want to be in. Oh, the first guy I went and saw, I said, "I cannot believe how amazing this is," and it was amazing. Um, that's that's Good. that's an all-time favorite
3: memory
2: Okay, um, amongst many, but sure. That's probably the first, the first one in in terms of my musical career. Cool.
1: Well, very good. Thank you so much, Paul. I think you're amazing. And I appreciate you giving me an hour of your time. It's a dream come true. My and, pleasure, uh, and thank
2: you. I always say to everybody that I talk to in your field that you're part of the family that keeps us, you know, that gets the information out, and that we depend as much on you, you know, for, for getting uh, the, the word out about what we do. Doing my part. And it's all one
1: one big uh, circle, yeah. you know, so I uh, want people you. to love you as much as I do, so I'm grateful
0: that you gave me a chance. Man, it doesn't get much more naked and honest than that. I gotta say, since this conversation, Paul has released an album, Uh, Feel the Noise came out last year, 2014, and it is as good as any of his early albums with the beat. If you like power pop, or you have an interest in Paul Collins, or you wanna know what he's up to right now, don't hesitate to buy his new album, it is incredible. Uh, Coming up in the weeks ahead, we have an interview with Marge Raymond, who is the self-proclaimed most famous rock star you've never heard of. Wait till you hear some of her close calls, her friends, the things she's been involved in. It's fascinating. Also, we're going to be talking to the lead singer of the British 80s band, Blue Zoo. Now, they had a hit in the UK with Cry Boy Cry. Never really made it over to the States, but after one album, they were done. This guy's name is Andy O. Wait until you hear what he's been doing since he turned away from music. Uh, It's kind of mind-blowing. Big thanks to Aaron Syrett for producing this podcast. Once again, don't be afraid to send me a note, the at gmail.com. Let me know how we're doing. Give us some ideas of bands you'd like to hear about. Thanks a lot.